Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. In my many years as an animator and director, my most defining projects have been my short film, Layers, along with Vanishing Ink and Cirque de Solitude, two books which I wrote, illustrated, and pitched at several studios as feature films. And I have more of these feature film pitches coming soon. I'm so excited about today's guest. It's the wonderful Michael Flaherty, who, his story is just incredible. He started as a teacher and then became a film producer. <laughs> he co-founded Walden Media, the, the company that brought out films like the Narnia series and Wonder and Mr. McGoran's Wonder Emporium and Hoot and just the list goes on and on. And I'm excited to have you with me here, Michael. Is there anything I left out of the intro that you'd like to add? <laughs> No, there's something you included. You're the first person to mention Mr. McGorian's Wonder Emporium in a positive light. <laughs> well, I have a fun story about that, actually. Oh. <laughs> so back in college, so I, we had my wife's, I, we were just newly married. My wife's niece came in and she's like, the Walden Media movies, I'm all about the Walden Media movies. And you so, knew the brand? Yes, yeah, she knew the brand. And so oh, I went and looked wow. up the Walden Media movies and I became a fan. And I actually gave a speech in my public speaking class on how we needed wholesome media and we needed to support it. And I, at, I invited my whole class to go see Mr. McGorry's Wonder Emporium. <laughs> oh, well, it's, I'll show you that at some point, it's fun. We should do another broadcast just to explain sort of box office. Yeah. Uh, we always over-index because it's pretty predictable the amount of money you get from each state. But Utah has always been so good to us. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and, and that film, you know, I'm, I, if we ever wanted to do a discussion on the story structure and that sort of thing of the, of the film, I, I could go into that. But overall, you know, my mother-in-law loves it, which is rare for my mother-in-law to love a film. And uh, my and kids love it. something with her son-in-law. What? It's rare for a mother-in-law and son-in-law to, to agree on things, <laughs> according to most sitcoms. Yes, yes. Actually, one of my fears was that someday I might come up with a film and she wouldn't love it, but... As the trend has gone, she's a very supportive person, so I think she would love it. <laughs> we were at a, um, our very first movie was a documentary with Jim Cameron. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of people have parents that do this. They pretend that they are never asleep. And five minutes in, my mother falls asleep. And my mother's here, and she's got a better seat than Jim. <laughs> Jim Cameron is one seat behind her, and yeah. Bill Paxton is next to Jim. And my mother's asleep, and so I just kind of give her a little nudge, and she goes, oh, Michael, honey, I don't know why you said this movie was so boring. I think it's great. <laughs> oh, man. I tell you. <laughs> that Irish whisper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> so uh, I, a lot of other interviewers that I've listened to have really covered your, your history very well. I, I'm actually more interested in about after the company started, what were the big challenges, the big lessons, the big things that, uh, that you've learned along the way? The people, you know, it's, it was just my roommate and my brother and I and our friend Josh Greer. And we went from a small number of people to by the time the first Narnie movie was done, we had over a hundred people and staff and we had offices all over the place. So not knowing everybody's name was a big challenge. Uh, of course, I, I made sure that I knew everyone's name. And it becoming a job uh, was a, a bit of a challenge. <laughs> there was a, a lot of output. And and look, it's I don't think people acknowledge Providence enough. And there's no reason 
why I should have had that job. It wasn't from my own industry or initiative. It was dropped into my lap, you know, uh-huh. and, but the expectations just remain really high when you have a few hits right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And so then the, we only have a single investor who's a saint. His name's Phil Anschutz. And um, it would be one thing if it was a large corporation, but when a movie fails, you feel like you're failing him yeah. and his family. Yeah. And it's really, it's, it's like your dad's the baseball coach and you struck out in the bottom of the night, you know, <laughs> you feel terrible because this guy is so generous and so thoughtful and so trusting. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of, <laughs> that's a lot of emotion there. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love and and I like, I like how you brought up Providence. I think it's very interesting. Actually in the question as I, or the topic as I originally wrote it, it's, there are just way too many coincidences, you know, <laughs> To, to not think something's at play here. You know, some might call it miraculous. Some might call it providence. Some might call it the universe. You know, but it's just uh, to, to go from like, I'm a t- actually a part of the story that I left out that I'd like my readers to hear is that you were a teacher. A couple of your students became obsessed with Titanic. And you were saying yeah. about how their love of Titanic was actually teaching them more about history and life than you felt like you were. And so that's oh, why. Oh, way you, more. Yeah, yeah. So we, there's a, like every state in the union, there are two school systems. There's a good school system for people who can afford it. Right. And then a lousy one for people who can't. <laughs> so the worst district in Boston is cluster seven. I mean, that's right out of the hunger games. Right. I mean, right. That's um, so we developed a curriculum for those kids to take a test that would get them into the free exam schools, which are elite Boston, Latin, you know, us presidents have graduated from these schools. And, but the problem is it was Saturday morning and it was two nights a week. So you don't want to jump right into linear equations with these kids who have been up all day. So the icebreaker was to talk about film and music and television. And every week it was something different until it was Titanic. And the next week they saw Titanic again. The next week they went to an exhibit. The next week they went to a library. So I just said, wow, it really can be a catalyst. It really can be a spark uh, to get kids to start to climb on that infinite ladder. Yeah. When I grew up doing a lot of musical theater, and I became obsessed with a musical called Ragtime. Uh, I didn't. Okay. I didn't understand why Ragtime didn't win the the Tony over Lion King until I saw Lion King. Then I got it. But <laughs> I uh, I just would listen to that over and over again, and that was my way in. I had a a really amazing history professor at the college and she mentioned things that connected to that musical and suddenly like I was she actually recommended I become a history major <laughs> really? in the past because of dates and memorizing dates and stuff they didn't really stick in my brain and uh, probably because I didn't care enough to, to memorize them but yeah then I suddenly was this great history guy <laughs> in well, do you think there's a connection between anime the, the great animation and we're a musical theater family too you know, my wife is on the board of the, the, the children's theater and all of my kids are in all the shows. Les Miserables, I think, is the most, the musical is the most perfect piece of entertainment ever created. Uh, yeah. uh, you think there's some connection between people who love musical theater and people who understand the role that music and song play in animation? I think so, yeah. Especially because I've listened to several lectures of, uh, oh, my mind just went blank. But he wrote the music for Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. And was it Ella Mankin or? Yeah. No, no, it yeah. wasn't Ella Mankin. It was the one who collaborated with him. And he, he collaborated on Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, why is my mind going blank? Anyway, he died, of, he, 
died Glenn, of AIDS. Glenn Drew Ariel. Yeah. I know he's well, a great man. Anyway, when that name comes back to me, I'll remember it in a minute. But uh, yeah, he uh, he gave these lectures at Disney on the importance of musical theater and, and involved it in storytelling. And then they come out with Little Mermaid and it was just such a, a huge hit. And I've listened to several people who critique music and film and they uh, there's one, I think his name is called Sideways, his YouTube channel. And he talked about how he felt like Little Mermaid was the best, the best score in all of the Disney movies. Yeah, because I agree all of this that. thought that went into the storytelling. So I think there, I think there's a connection for sure. And you should have on your show the woman who voiced Ariel is Jodie Benson. Such, oh yes. Yeah, I'm a she's huge Jodie Benson fan. Yeah, she's great. And, and you know who I love is actually you don't really become chubby with uh, a lot of these actors and such, but uh, Anika Noni Rose, oh. who the voice in the Princess and the Princess Frog. And the Frog, and yes. You're a musical theater person. So Howard you know. Ashman. His name is Howard Ashman. Outside of that, yes. yes. She is the best. And what yeah. a talent. Yeah. Oh, extraordinary. Actually, yeah. I, I watched the Almost There song over and over and over again. <laughs> yes. my, favorite little, my favorite little animation bit is when her shoulders do this. They switch. Yes. <laughs> and she's like, I'm almost there. And a lot of people would have just put her arms out, but they put this little shoulder move in it. And I just, I can't stop watching that the little it's piece the of animation. underrated animated film, I think. It's so beautiful and it's so sweet. And the style of animation, it's terrifying, you know, the, with the voodoo. Oh, yeah, yeah. They don't shy away from their powers and principalities, you know, that are invisible, that are right. working on us. Yeah. I, I think that show is fantastic as well. So, for sure. That's another one of those that we really made sure, I made sure the whole family went and supported it. And <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So- <laughs> Filmmaker slash evangelist. <laughs> evangelist for for certain types of films and <laughs> certain and things. If, that... if you mind, I don't want to. I'm not trying to flip the script here, but can you give me if when you're in a room the log line sort of or the premise for layers? Because there are so many layers. You know, yeah. what would be like the A story? How how would you describe it? So the basic like premise is that uh, <laughs> a woman. To survive climbing this mountain, a woman has to dig through the memories of her past. Yeah. And uh, that's, the, that's the fundamental logline. And obviously, there's, there's a deeper story that we're trying to tell there, but that is, that is the basic thing that yeah, I no, put in I, no. every film festival and stuff. So You don't have to grow up in Vienna last century to <laughs> figure out how those memories become obstacles. Oh, yeah. It's they become a, obstacles, and sometimes they're strengths, and you, you often never know which one they are. Yeah, and they well, they can all be. If you take the attitude that they can all be turned into strengths, and that God redeems all things, mm-hmm. and you're just trying to figure out why is this lousy thing happening? Yeah, how are you going to use this, Lord? It's a better approach to take. I wish I had taken it 15 minutes ago when I couldn't figure out how to get my audio <laughs> going, and I yeah. was acting uh, less saintly than I'm trying to come on out off the staff. <laughs> Well, on my end, it looked pretty saintly, but I. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I actually had a discussion. I, I live, I work in a entrepreneurial space, and we were talking with this guy, and there was a a certain company in my past that was very difficult for me to work for, and I was talking, but I also learned a ton, right? And I actually made a list of all the pros and cons of having worked there. And every single con has become a pro because of the important lessons that I've learned that have built my own personal business as I've been going forward. And I, it was a crash course in business and I learned so much. And, and I've, I've been able to still remain friends with the, the founders of the company, even though, you know, 
that could have become rocky. So it, it, it's very interesting how we look at things and, and how we judge them, for sure. Well, it's like yeah. Aeschylus says, you know, it's that, that's, that's the foundation of wisdom. You well, know, what's the, the foundation of wisdom specifically? That sadness, you know, the, the, the tears, you know, that fall onto your heart eventually turn to wisdom. And so the older you get and the more you get on the other side and you reflect on things, the more you realize that things do turn out for the better, that there was a reason. And I actually hate that cliche. Everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that. (laughs) I do believe that God redeems all things and you can look back and see purpose uh, in things that just seemed unlivable at the time. That's really cool. Cool philosophy for sure. So it's in all your films. (laughs) <laughs> it is. It's in all my projects for sure. Yeah. I, I really, I really do believe that, and I believe in the the power of of positivity, and that there are, there are forces out there that really have our best interest in mind for sure. Yes, I would call them God. Other people call them other things, but uh, yeah, absolutely for sure. And and obviously, you would call them God, as we've had discussions about that. So let me get this is this is a good segue into another topic and. Now, now, Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I admire him as a filmmaker. His, his films obviously don't jive with my brand. Uh, my brand yeah. would jive with somebody more like Cecil B. DeMille or, you know, or uh, Frank Capra or whatnot. But there's so much that I've learned from this book called Hitchcock Truffaut, where Francois Truffaut, he, who ended up becoming a great filmmaker, uh, at least considered by the masses as a great filmmaker in France, uh, he interviewed Hitchcock and asked him all this advice. And there was this common pattern between DeMille, Capra, Spielberg, Hitchcock, that you they, they had this opportunity to make tons and tons and tons and tons of films. And because of that, they had all these perspectives. They didn't have just one little baby project that they're like, this is my, my masterpiece, right? They were able to yeah. look at all of them and point to the strengths and the weaknesses. What are the lessons that you've learned from being involved in so many projects? It's exactly what you said, is that you spread yourself thin, uh-huh. And it's it's you shouldn't place a ton of bets, and that was one of the problems I think we had is we wanted to once you have a big staff then you need a lot of to generate a lot of films to justify that overhead. Yeah. Whereas Pixar takes their time and you know they do one a year and that's been in development for who knows how many years. At least four, right? Yeah, at least four. Up to like and, ten. Ten was Toy Story three. I think that was the longest that I've heard. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was because uh, there's the proverbial napkin, right? Where they drew out these are the movies that we're going to do, mm-hmm. and I'm a that that book that you mentioned. Obviously, it's every director has to read that book. It's almost a requirement. Hitchcock but, Truffaut, or yeah, oh yeah, and in the um, but if you ever get a chance, Orson Welles did an interview with Dick Cavett, and it's amazing because when I think of Orson Welles, I just think of him as this, you know untouchable, this Mandarin, you know, giving advice from a mountain. And Scott, he was the most self-deprecating, down to earth. Really? He talked about how hard it was to get a film made, that he could never get movies funded. Yeah. Uh, the films that he really loved to do. And what he always said was that, you know, and it kind of goes to uh, layers, the removal of obstacles is the removal of creativity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think about he, that all the time because... He's the most genius. He's not so esoteric as some of these other guys. And you just YouTube the interview, and he's got a great story there about Winston Churchill. Yeah. And he's one of those guys, you know, he's kind of like Jimmer, 
You know, like he was huge when he was really young and the expectations were through the roof. Yeah. And there's really nowhere to go from there. Right. You when know? Jimmer was a BYU basketball player who just was extraordinary. Now he's kind the of the best. Yeah. yeah, he was. And now he's struggling to make the career work. Yeah. And he has made it work by any other metric. He's, you know, he's drafted in the first round. He played well in the NBA. He played well in China. But I think people expected him to be Michael Jordan. Right. <laughs> yeah. BYU fan. Because we have Danny Ainge as our general manager of the Celtics. Yeah. Cool. Well, so, okay, something you said that I really liked was this idea of once you remove the obstacles, the creativity kind of dies. And that's one thing I've really been thinking a lot about because I, I have these three posters behind me, right? These are projects yeah. that I've put out there and I'm trying to create these multiple fires that hopefully one of them becomes a feature animated film. And I have two more hanging above my desk. <laughs> you know? And I'm trying to like churn out all these ideas. And then I think what will happen at that point where... I have a feature film like funded and we're, we're actually doing the project. How do I keep that fire lit underneath me to stay creative, stay foolish, stay hungry? You know? Well, and how do you keep your kindness? Because now you're under deadlines okay. and you need to be a witness to all of the people that are around you. And that was one of my major failings as, you know, someone who likes to talk about, you know, providence and his belief in the divine is you're up against the deadline and you're getting frustrated and who would ever want to have anything to do with this rabbi who lived 2000 years ago, if it meant behaving like the way I was just being completely beastly towards people. So, uh, and you will, Scott, you will get to that. You will have a feature. So I think that's, that should be your biggest concern is maintaining your humanity and your soul. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and we bring up that uh, that company, the former company that I talked about that I worked for. That was one of the big the big challenges is because I was suddenly dealing with a company that was very concerned with profit, which, I mean, that's why we build a company often, right, is <laughs> to, to have profit. But I was always asking myself, at the expense of what? And I was, I was building a team of videographers and uh, designers that were supposed to create marketing content. And I was always having these conversations of how do I make sure that this person is also valued and motivated and at the same time, I meet the, the expectations of all the people involved. And it was such a challenge. And, yeah. and yet, I feel like I learned so much from it. Uh, Matt Damon tells a great story that he's filming Rainmaker with, I forget who it was, but it was Scorsese, someone gigantic. Yeah. And he couldn't, his first line, he couldn't get it right. And he was just petrified because he knew it was this big, expensive movie. It was his first big, expensive movie and that he was you know, above the title. And the director just took him aside and just said, like, hey, how are you doing? What have you been up to? I heard you're a Red Sox fan. And he looked around and he just said, this guy put this whole production on hold just to make sure that I was feeling okay. He's not yeah. worried about the movie or anything. He's actually worried about me. And he went on to hit it out of the park, obviously, because he's such a great actor. Yeah. I Steph Curry has a production company at Sony. And they actually, in every meeting, they always say, Steph always tells us purpose over profits, purpose over profits. That's what a great guy Steph Curry is. Yeah, yeah. Purpose over profits. I really that's that's good mantra <laughs> for sure. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think the greatest leaders are servants. They think of themselves as servants. They're actually serving the needs of. Like the the idea shouldn't be how do I make this animator conform to my vision of the film? It should be 
how do I use this opportunity of this person working on my film to push their skills to the highest level, to help them become the animator or the art director or the character designer that they want to be? And if there was a formula that translated to profit, by all means, follow it. But yeah. there's not. For over 100 years, only one out of five movies makes money. Yeah, And these are the big ones. Four out of five will fail that the geniuses at all the studios pick. So it really isn't in your hands beyond doing your best. 80% will fail no matter how, how hard people try or how much effort they put into it. Right, right. <laughs> and you always wonder, like, how do you? Oh, you read Hitchcock Truffaut. You, you, know, you read all these story structure books and, and have interviews and, and ask people questions. and just well, like what Tony can... said. They just said, well, just don't make those other four movies. <laughs> exactly. That's the that's the right solution, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, has has that been your track record, Kurt? Is is it seems like it's been better than four out of? It, it has. It has, and uh, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with cheating because <laughs> we um, uh, before the X Men and Marvel comics before all those movies came out, uh, my idea was just to take my wife's reading list from St. Peter's in South Boston because mm -hmm. I figured if these books have been popular for decades, there must be something universal about the story that people love. Mm -hmm. So effectively, the IP was already test marketed. Right. You know, I mean, how, like they always say, I mean, how hard is it to sell Twilight to a bunch of girls at the mall? <laughs> you know, the, it's already sold millions of books. You know, you just say it comes out on this date. Uh, ditto for us. There was such built-in awareness so the track record for adaptations is way beyond that one out of five. But for original productions like Mr. Megorian's Wonder Emporium, mm -hmm. you're unleashed and, you know, you don't know where, where it's going to head. Those are much harder. Yeah. And our batting average was, hopefully it was one out of five, but the original ones. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be an interesting number to look into. <laughs> yeah. So what, what draws you in all your experience to a collaborator? To somebody that you'd like to work with, but somebody I can learn from—that's mm -hmm. a—that's a big deal because there's just so much more. You just want to work with somebody who's kind to other people. There's nothing more awkward than to be in a position because now that I'm independent, you know, you or as my friend Bill Mechanic, who was the head of Disney and the head of Fox, says, "We're not independent filmmakers, Mike. We're dependent filmmakers." <laughs> We're dependent on so many outside circumstances in order to get a film made. But it's that scary moment when if, if you're in a position of, say, authority higher than someone else and they're nice to you, but you see the way they treat other people uh -huh. and they're not kind. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to stay away from those sort of toxic people. Yeah. So I like to see uh, people who are radically egalitarian and they treat everyone the same. Mm -hmm. That was always a rule with Phil Antutes was he would see how people treated people who answered the phones. And if they were kinder to Phil or to other people than to the person who answered the phone, Phil didn't want to do business with them. Because in Phil's eyes, Phil's no different than the person one year out of NYU who's answering phones. They're the same person. And so they should be treated the same. Yeah, I really like that. How do you know that there's somebody you can learn from? You mentioned that. Like you, you pick somebody that you know you can learn from. How do you know that? Uh, that. You, you, you know the day after you hire them. <laughs> <laughs> <You're insane. laughs> um, cause it's hard to go on other people's opinions because it is such a brutal business when you yeah. think of maybe maybe eight 
uh, feature-length animated films get released a year, right? Mm-hmm. If you're that if it's a big year, a big year, so yeah, for that's sure. way harder than hitting the lottery. It's way harder than making you know a professional the Olympics or a professional sports team. <laughs> so it's truly rarefied air, and there's a lot of sharp elbows that are going around out there. So it's hard to rely on other people because if you ask someone someone's opinion, like, "Hey, what do you think of Scott Weiser?" It's like he's a really good director, but I, if you like Scott Weiser, I have a project that's more Scott Weiser than Scott Weiser. You should do that project. <laughs> you know but that's so it's it's hard to trust other people's opinions uh because they're always looking to sell their projects yeah so you gotta go you gotta go in your gut and you know if you've worked with people before and we have a great i got to run the intern program for 15 years those kids now are doing great you know julie is the president of amazon films uh molly's the CEO of Black Label that did La La Land and a bunch of other movies. Uh It was so cool because I knew these kids when they were freshmen in college. Yeah. And now I'm calling them and begging them for work. Nice. I, I've actually, I, it's it's interesting when you have somebody who you like. I've had I have people that I've admired since I got into animation, and when they say something like that, like I'm going to call you for work someday, that's just a, that's a humbling thought, you know. And, and it's, it's it's the circle of life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you see it, and um, I learned it from Glenn Keane. You know, yeah. Glenn always told me, and I was like, you'll always be at the top. You know, like you'll never have to worry about this stuff. Um, but what I didn't realize is that probably in his own mind, Glenn was ar- already plotting, you know, I want to work at my own place that's smaller, mm-hmm. where I have more control. Yeah. Um, and he made and, some beautiful things so far. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's just beyond, isn't he? Yeah. His stuff. It's, uh, well, and so loves- humble. It's I always quote to people that he, at the end of his term at Disney, he said that he wished he could draw better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know when he's got exhibits at the store morning all this. And, um, but I think that there's, and I think that he would say this publicly. So Glenn, forgive me if I'm speaking out of school, but you know, his dad was a great illustrator. He had the family circus. Cartoon. Yeah, King, big fan. Yeah. And uh, occasionally people would suck the life out of it for him. You know, like say, you know, have you worked on your anatomy today? You know, <laughs> have you worked on this specific aspect yeah. of illustration? That, that can really take the joy out of it. Yeah. It definitely can. I can totally relate to that. Yeah. And actually, there's always this uh, imposter syndrome running in the back of a lot of artists' brains. It's like, is somebody going to come and reveal me as the imposter, right? <laughs> somebody going to oh, come uh, by and be... Who don't feel that way. Yeah. Anyone who, who, who thinks, well, of course, you know, I, I earned this. I deserve this. This is mine. That's narcissism, you know? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. wake up every day like, oh, I am the biggest phony on planet Earth. <laughs> you know, today's a day it'll be splashed across all the banners. Yeah. That was a middle name. He is stupid. Well, and all your answers so far really jive with the next question that we have. And that is, what do you think the biggest thing that creative leadership in the animation industry can do to make the industry a better place to work? And that's actually a permanent topic. We ask every guest that, but I'm excited to hear your answer because you've touched on it already a little bit. Well, I, I think that we're seeing it 
in the U.S. right now where we didn't have the protective equipment for our medical staff because it's in outsourced to other countries. Uh, we didn't have, we weren't certain that we'd have the medicines to give people because those were outsourced to other companies. I'm not being ethnocentric in, in one bit. It's actually quite the opposite. I think that it's nonsense to exploit a labor pool in other countries, you know, just because people are willing to work for less. Mm-hmm. That's just not fair to them. But I think that we really need a commitment to people who are here. And just the way that Atlanta built an industry around physical production and film, I think that we need to build one state, hopefully, will come to its senses and say, we're just going to focus on animation and we can truly create an industry the way people create an automobile industry or a fashion industry and they become known for that. And there is, let's face it, I mean, I'm not playing to the hometown crowd here. There's no state that comes close to Utah. Kelly Loosely in the program he has at BYU is just bananas. Oh, yeah. Everyone's always locating and this it breaks my heart because my son really wants to do video games <laughs> and I follow what happens like i remember when disney moved star wars to utah like that's the most brilliant thing they ever did when they had the video game project there and then i read that they shut it down yeah and i just said that's sinful that's that's a waste like you can if you're not going to do star wars anymore then you have you've already collected this talent pool have them make a movie you've got them all in the same building they're all in the same roof don't disperse them right you know you already have a big head start and that's where you wish you were a billionaire you Mm -hmm. know where you just say nobody move yeah <laughs> we'll figure something out but well i had um, another thing similarly that you probably didn't even hear about it was and i won't mention the name of the studio but it was a studio that was really begging me to come over um one of the reasons i didn't go is because they wanted me to sign over layers <laughs> and i'm like uh, i can't quite do that yet <laughs> i need just yeah. a little bit more control over that ip and that's, that's a predatory request though well it wasn't really the that wasn't the direct request we, they were talking about the the terms of the contract and i asked them does this mean this and the person said ah, it pretty much does and i don't agree with it but it does say that pretty much um but they were actually bringing they were pulling a lot of talent from byu and then uh luckily i'm glad i turned them down because there were lots of layoffs and <laughs> hopefully hopefully they make the cool things that they're trying to make uh there was lots of talented people there but uh it, it does happen quite quite frequently part of i do think what i don't want to interrupt but there should be a way to monetize shorts oh yeah i would love that um you know, parents have no problem paying $10 for layers. I don't think people have in their mind that I'm only going to pay 10 minutes, $10 for 120 minutes. Because you buy these Caldecott award-winning books that have two words and eight pictures for $20. <laughs> Beautiful hardcover books. Hollywood's done a terrible job figuring out a way to, to monetize uh, short films. Yeah. And it could be Pixar does it. You know, Pixar sells those movies. They used to back in the day. And anyone that has young children knows they watch stuff over and over and over. And then as they get older, like with something like Layers, they'll say something, you know, you'll try to give them a dad talk, you know, hey, son, you know, that those kind of, uh, that which doesn't kill us only makes us stronger. And they'll be like, Oh, yeah, it's like that uh, cartoon I used to watch all the time. Every time they ran into an obstacle, they got further up the mountain, but they confronted it. It really sticks with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I think I really liked Moonbot when they did Mr. Uh, Mr. McCoy. Oh, it is the Fantastic Flying Books of Mr. Morris Lesmore. So that was a oh. uh, Academy Award winning film. It won the Oscar. And then they were in Austin, right? It went, what? Were they in Austin? They were in Shreveport, Louisiana. 
Before. Okay. Actually, I campaigned to work there for many years. I've interviewed one of the co-founders of that. He was my second or third interview. I think second. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they, it was just an inspiring place to me. And I loved how they took this short film. They put the short film up for free, but you could also buy this this app that you could interact with the short film. And that that was one of the only short films I've ever seen make a lot of money. And then they had a, a New York Times bestselling book that came out. So, th so they actually profited from the short film by taking it and putting it in different forms. And, and why was that model abandoned? Because I personally liked exploring that world. I, I downloaded that. Well, it wasn't really abandoned. Uh, Shreveport was purchased by another company, and then then the purchasing kind of fell out. It didn't actually quite happen, but it, it's a oh, long okay. story. But yeah, <laughs> so, you think that, especially in Hollywood, where every good idea is stolen you would think that another studio would say okay this is truly multimedia yeah you know this, this is a good way to go right i'd love to do something like that it would be incredible they're realizing in video games when you look at the the price for video games my son just finished persona 5 and it took 11 months and he did it with his two friends mm -hmm. and there had to be 200 hours of content in that and it had a very rich story I'm very interested to see where things go with video games because the storytelling is trying to eclipse the Hollywood level of storytelling. Yeah. Have you, you played Red Dead Redemption yet? I haven't, no. The only game I've played recently is called Sky. <laughs> I know, oh, yeah. Faster yeah. with Sky, because it's a freemium model, right? Where they, you buy it for, you get it for free, the, the game, but then there are things you can purchase that make the game more interesting and more dynamic. And I look around at that, and I, I know that some people are spending up to $100 on that game yeah. so far since it started. And they keep coming with up, out with updates, and it's like this ever-changing, ever-growing little world they've created. So it's, it's fascinated me, and it's also fascinated me that the, the whole premise of the game is generosity. And there's not really violence in it. It's not about taking from other people or hurting other people. It's more like giving, and you're rewarded based on on giving. And I, I I'm very fascinated with that. that what I should find my son and ask him the name of it. I'll I'll remember it in a minute. But it was the number one indie game for like two years in a row. But it operated on the same principle. Was it Journey? Where which one? Journey. Um, no, it was operating the same principle where you could use violence to get through the levels, but you ultimately wouldn't win the game. And it was more about forging friendships and changing hearts and minds to level up. It was mostly text-based, uh -huh. but I'll, I'll find out the name of it. There was great artwork in it. And Shigeru Miyamoto loved that kid so much that he just put one of his characters in Smash. Huh. So, oh, wow. uh, Flowey, a, a little flower is one of the characters. I'll remember it right when we get off the, the call, I'm sure. But I'll, I'll, I'll email it to you, it's great. Cool. And then, of course, Utah is home to the most popular piece of entertainment ever in terms of video games. Because that like, was... Say Disney Infinity? Oh, no. No, way bigger than that. Uh, why am I blanking on... Um, talk about freemium. What is the uh, the game where you can play... It has the gigantic bus. Fortnite? The, yes. Uh. Fortnite has Utah roots. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. Interesting. Deep, deep Utah roots. So yeah. I, huh. uh, the gentleman that was running BYU TV is the uh, CEO or co-CEO of that the company. Wow, that that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm telling you that diaspora, that Utah animation diaspora is incredible. Yeah, yeah. And we haven't seen, I think we just started seeing what's oh, going to happen with it. Sure, at least I hope that. <laughs> 
I selfishly hope that. So our last question that we always ask is called the Get Wiser Moment. The question actually used to be, what responsibility does a filmmaker have to the world culture? But now it's evolved because it's part of my brand that I want to get the greatest clarity of truth into a film possible, the great, greatest potency of truth into a film. If that's my goal, what approach would you recommend? And this is, this is going to sound like a, a valley girl, but uh, <laughs> don't, don't be scared of scaring people. And if you really want to give people truth, show them that there are dark nights out there as well. But the way to true joy and true happiness is discovering that you can defeat the darkness. Yeah. And I think two times we define things by the absence of, oh, this is great. There's no language. There's no violence. There's no fun. You know, you can, <laughs> see, you can take your kids to it. And I think that the, the best kind of films are the ones that show your children that they will face, you know, I mean, we live in the atomic age, as C.S. Lewis said, it's kind of naive to... Well, his, his films explore, or books explore darkness too. Yeah. On, on many levels. And uh, I mean, I, we mentioned Frank Capra and It's a Wonderful Life. A lot of people think that is a lighthearted film. Have you watched the film in a year if, I, if somebody says you know that? You the like, event of that movie? Do you realize... Suicide. like? <laughs> yes, it's about suicide. It's also about like he's he's having a hard time controlling his rage with some of the people, like the the woman yeah. who becomes his wife. He kind of has this this yeah, rage that almost comes out on her, and <laughs> no, it does come out. She says, "Why don't you leave?" What's yeah. the worst thing a spouse could say? You know, it's yeah. it, and that really hurts him. Yeah, and then what I love is when the God speaking to the angels, and uh, they say, "What's his problem?" And uh, is he? sad or something and god answers worse he's discouraged <laughs> and if you remember from the new testament there was barnabas whose name means the encourager and he was the guy that was just like paul you're the best man don't don't worry about it don't listen to these other guys you're awesome paul i love you and um i just think if we could speak more encouragement into people's lives and just show the role that that plays yeah all the best when you go through all the movies it's all the joseph campbell stuff you know, it's the, I'm not the hero that you're looking for. I'm just an ordinary person. Mm-hmm. And then they end up doing extraordinary things, mm-hmm. but they don't do it without the mentor telling them that they're capable of doing so much more than the world tells them that they're capable. That's but great. it's like, you, you don't even have to ask the question because you're, uh, you're batting a thousand. Like it's in <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's constantly on my mind. I'm always thinking about that. I'm because I so, see so many tro- uh, films where there are little lies being told, or even the whole premise of the film kind of falls apart. It's, it's it feels like a lie, and I and I never want to do that. I never yeah. want to just take something like a political belief I have or something and throw that out in a film. And then there's you know I don't think politics actually has a lot of truth in it nowadays. And so, no. uh, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> It's like, where do I look? Where do I, where do I find that truth? How, how do I have conversations that help me discover it? That's, that's always on my mind. Yeah. And actually this book that I, that nobody hardly knows about, I think I mentioned it to you that I just sent to my agent. It, I, I really struggled with the book because it was saying things that I almost didn't agree with. And, and I was like, why, why, why? And I had to just keep exploring that. And then I started to discover the truths that I did realize were true. And yeah. that was a wonderful process, you know? To, to kind of push against these things that I've been thinking were true, but oh, wow, maybe not. Maybe there's more truth to what this story is trying to tell me. See, I, <laughs> I love that because I always get sad when I see people tell their kids, you know, they remove a book from a kid's hands and they say, you shouldn't be reading that book. Because first of all, 
it makes the kid feel like they broke the law, you know, like something shameful by just picking up a book. They didn't know, you know? Yeah. And as long as you are keeping up with it and you're reading it and you're having discussions with them, yeah, it can't, you know, it can't hurt them. Uh, it, as long as you're making sure that, uh, you know, like with Philippians, you know, whatever's good, whatever's truthful, the emphasis is on that. Right. But you know that these other kinds of thoughts are going to be out there and they might be the ones that push us and challenge us and, and get us closer to the light than we realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, with all the, there have been lots of posts about uh, current social issues, race issues uh, on social media. And I've gone through and I read every comment, every discussion on, on especially if the, well, it's about race right now, right? So I go through and I read every one of them. And I, the only time I've commented it actually was there was somebody saying, oh, you should hire somebody of color. And I said, oh, I have, I have an amazing guy. I recommended somebody, right? But that's the only time I've commented. I haven't really weighed in of my opinion because I've realized that maybe my opinion is still forming. <laughs> you know? the, because uh, these two ideologies shouting at each other a lot of the time. And yeah, or, or you're just going to, someone's going to use your opinion to score club points. Yeah, and yeah. That's the problem. At NYU now, you can report a professor anonymously. Uh-huh. You know, say he said or she said terrible things or did terrible things. Mm-hmm. And the onus is on the professor to prove their innocence. Mm-hmm. So it has quite a chilling effect. And the reason why kids do that is it's the equivalent of being a great creator or a great athlete was when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. If you could take somebody down, that's one of the ways to become popular now. And on the on the race issue, it was heartbreaking for me, the hypocrisy that I would see because I'd walk in and I'd see these big, huge posters of President Obama and we'd have all these films that had African-American protagonists and great themes and, and, and talked about all of the inequities in every system across the board. And they'd say, yeah, 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 that movie won't sell. And it was like, well, what? And I'll leave you with this great story about Phil, uh, give you an insight into his character. It's 2000 and he wants to make the biopic about Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. And everyone said to him, look, people don't go to uh, biopics. They certainly don't go to biopics about African-Americans. And you're going to have to make a lot of money out of foreign. No, there's no foreign money for an African-American biopic. And so Phil said, well, that's interesting, but irrelevant because I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) And he paid 100% of the cost of that film. Awesome. Wow. Never would have been made if he didn't do it. Wow. I'm super jazzed about the Aretha Franklin one coming up. Super excited about that one. The Aretha Franklin. Oh, yes. Respect is what it will be called, I think. Yeah. 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 And there was recently Amazing Grace, the doc, uh, the Aretha Franklin. And there is, uh, I don't know why they don't do more with with music. Yes. There's just, when you read about Fleetwood Mac, I mean, the drama of that band, goodness gracious. And that song, do you know the song, Sarah? I think so. It's It's a beautiful, haunting song, but it's... Poor Stevie Nicks lamenting an abortion that she had. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really deep. Um, which again, I'm not being obsequious when I tell you about layers. I, I like things that you can, it's just a beautiful song. And you can just enjoy it and appreciate it on its own. But it's also thought provoking on a deeper level when you dive in and you read the stories behind the stories of all of these things. And that's probably the best thing that uh, if you could just continue to pull that off where 
people can pull all kinds of things out of story. Yeah. It's great because you, the best compliment, and my son gave it to you for layers. Wow. I saw things in there I didn't even realize last time. That's, <laughs> that's the ultimate compliment I think you can get as a filmmaker. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And it's been wonderful having you as a guest. We sadly have to go 45 minutes always, but... Uh... I apologize because there are so many people that said some kind things, and I, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful to have you on the show. You, you're an inspiration and thank you for all of your thoughts. And, and oh, next time, hopefully we'll be into, oh, I can't say actually, I'm not sure who our next guest is. <laughs> it might be one or, or more of two people, but it, it will be somebody amazing. So, uh, until, well, I'll, I'll tune in. let's do something together too. Let's yes. create something. Oh, I want to. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, until right. next time, take care and, and get wiser. You have been watching the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. Produced by Lauren Chaikin. Audio version edited by Kiera Horowitz. Copyright Scott Weiser, LLC 2020.